I don't care whether you call it networking or establishing relationships or whatever. The way this thing works best is when somebody I have talked to in the past says, you know who you need to talk to? And so feel free to hit me up if you have somebody you say, you know who Stuart needs to talk to? And I love to meet new people, and that's the way it worked today when a past podcast guest, Rachel Hatterberg-Walt, said, you know who you need to talk to? Lucretia Carter-Berry, Dr. Berry, Uh, but you don't have to say the doctor. You can just say Lucretia, and she does interesting stuff, and they had worked together on a project, and she thought you should talk to her, so that's the way this worked out. And let me just say, if you... If I, as an old straight white dude, uh, talk to a black woman about her hair, it can go wrong in many, many ways. It can go very badly in many, many ways. And so we talk about talking about her hair as a way to really open up a big concept, con- conversation. There is no con in just uh, saying, I like your hair. And uh, and it opens up all sorts of other channels, as, as you'll hear, not the least of which is she went to an HBCU, all-black church, and then married a white dude. There's, there's a story there. There's a story here in today's show. So I say, who are you talking to about this? Because I know you're excited about what you're learning, and I know you're trying to share it with people, and they are not understanding. This is In Her Words, a podcast from manlisting.com, featuring one man listening to the stories of real women in their own words. In Her Words, a conversation worth hearing because every woman deserves to be heard. Hey there, and welcome to In Her Words, the podcast. I'm Stuart Watson. I'm your host. I created this, and I've kept doing it for 175 continuous weeks. And this week is no different with a new podcast every week, all during COVID. Haven't missed a week, not a one, and no zero repeats. And this week we have a new guest and a new podcast and I went to her home and she was very gracious and her husband opened the door and then I met her dogs and her kids were away at school and then uh, he gave up uh, his space in her office and worked at the kitchen table so I could talk to her. Um, She is the creator of a number of books, but most notably, if you want to find her, it's Lucretia, L-U-C-R-E-T-I-A, Lucretia Carter Berry maiden name Carter, and she is an author, educator, and thought leader, and creator of something called Brownicity, which you'll hear about, which is a combination of the word brown and the word ethnicity, and she opens amazing conversations, and she doesn't shame anybody, and she teaches right here in Davidson at the community school, and boy, was this fun. Where were you born? I was born in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, right up the road. And what, if anything, did your mother tell you about her pregnancy, labor, and delivery with you? Oh, that's so great. So she was pregnant. Um, It was a surprise. I think she was 18, so young by her account. Um, I was born at 3.03 in the p.m. 
And in 1971, I was born in a black hospital. Where? In Winston-Salem. What was the name of it? She told me, but I don't remember. Is it still there? No. Is um, the building standing? I, I don't remember. I remember growing up, it had been uh, changed into um, a mental hospital. For the state? Yes. But I don't know if that building is still there or not. That's, I'll have to ask her. That needs to be a little birth, little science's birthplace of Lucretia. You're right. Exactly. <laughs> we can rectify that history. There we go. Yes. <laughs> birthplace of Lucretia Carter. Now Lucretia Carter Berry. That's right. <laughs> so you do the hyphen thing? No, not really. Because I received or earned my doctorate as Carter. Lucretia Carter, and it was before I was married with kids. So all of my, you know, research and credentials and expertise is all under Carter. So in order to bridge that, because um, all of my of course, the work that I do now is Barry. So I just Carter Barry, just so people know it's the same person. Um, Where did you get your PhD? Iowa State University. So I did you have like a thesis? I I did for my doctorate. I had a dissertation. And it was um, computer-mediated communication and multicultural education opportunities and challenges. So essentially, I was writing about the possibility, the potential, the challenges of social media before it was even a thing. What year was that? <laughs> 1990. Wow. I mean, no, not 1990. That's when I graduated from high school. I'm sorry. 2000. 2000. Well, still. It, yeah, that was still really early because there was no... There was no social media. No Facebook? No, not in 2000. It's hard. And so, yeah. Yeah, that's when I graduated. So, yeah, late 90s. Um, it's like, it's still what was new in the late 90s was um, like uh, distance learning via like, um, uh, like classrooms that were connected online. So, I created a, an online classroom with people from different places. From They lived in different states. And so... No cameras. That's right. No cameras. It they was were all like text. bulletin boards. Yeah, it was. Yep, that's right. All text. I'd pose questions, pose assignments, and the people would answer the questions. And then I'd ask them about their experiences. And I was looking to see if... Um, this, if we could actually have it like emancipated learning environments or democratic spaces. I don't know what those mm -hmm. mean. Which what? means like, okay, so because this is what back then people were saying that the technology was the great equalizer. <laughs> Not necessarily because you still bring your whole self, you bring your culture um, you bring all of that to the and technology. And you may not have the tech. You have the digital exactly. divide. So, so exactly. But that was just emerging back then. That notion of the digital divide was even, see, that wasn't even really a thing then either. And so here I was talking about how, well, like if you're shy in a classroom or maybe culturally you don't speak up in an in-person classroom, then you, it's going to be the same way in a written. So just because it's everybody has the same access and space. Um, doesn't mean that it's going to be used the same way. The people who are very vocal and charismatic in person are the very vocal and charismatic people 
um, in a space where everybody has the same kind of access. So I was way back then looking at the things that, um, you know, people have come to see now, like the, again, the opportunities, the opportunities and the challenges. So I, regarding technology, uh, someone was just asking me about AI and I'm like, well, I'm a cautious early adopter. So I'm not afraid of it, but I also know that, you know, technology is inherently biased because it's created by humans. So I don't go in with this kind of naivete, naive, oh, it's going to fix everything. It will fix some things, but it's also going to create or show um, problems that have been there for a long time and haven't been addressed. One of my things is if you and I were talking to each other in a studio, Mm -hmm. like big mics, Mm -hmm. we would have a different conversation. Mm -hmm. If we were in a church, Mm -hmm. we would have a different conversation. Mm -hmm. If we were on Zoom, we would have a different conversation. You will have a different conversation based on Mm -hmm. how we were connected. That is a part of it as well. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And if you're being graded or judged, right. <laughs> then because, you're going to have a yeah. different conversation. We got to perform. Exactly. And that's as I'm saying. You, you would still, in that context, you would still bring all of your cultural conditioning around the, that around the classroom. So how does a classroom function? So you still bring that, um, even though you're not sitting in the classroom. We're not sitting all together in the classroom. And people were, like I said, in different states. I don't even know how I got them to... Like, who are these people that I got to participate in this? I don't know, but wow, it was, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I love that I got to so early um, play around and, you know, write about it. So before you came to the community school of Davidson, yes, where were you in those years? Right. Okay. So um, off, I, so I was a, I, w- I went from college professor um, to then being married, having children, then that Where were part you a being professor? at um, Illinois State uh-huh. was a, I was a you know full time professor, and then got married, had kids, and then kind of what I was doing took a backseat to what my husband was doing, and we went into ministry. Um, that's a whole traumatic story there, all by itself. <laughs> and then, Where did you go into ministry? where he is from. He is from Iowa. So then we move back to Iowa. He becomes a youth pastor. I become a quote unquote youth pastor's wife, um, which is a whole thing in and and of itself. And then I did, um, as we then had children, I did a little adjunct work. Um, We moved to Winston-Salem. He wanted to be close to my family. Um, And then we... Um, we moved to Winston-Salem also to plant a church. Um, I think that that was just the... What kind of church? <laughs> Ooh, what kind of church? Like a, like a non-denominational church. Probably um, would have been under the umbrella of evangelical, non-denominational, I think. I'm not really... Um, I'm not really, I think, a verse on the... Or, yeah, up on the church... Uh, categories. That's more of my husband's. <laughs> like I don't. What kind of church y'all go to now? We don't. Yeah. See, that's a whole other story. It's a whole other stream. A whole story. Um, would you? Would you? Do you identify as a Christian now? I think I. I think. I think so. Um, but because I grew up 
with a different expression of Christianity than my husband. Um, I feel like I've always been on the margins of like that type of mainstream Christianity. So I married into a, a different Christian expression, you know, I'm like, oh, this is different and tried it on. And, um, and then eventually, yeah, we've moved away from that. Um, and so, yeah, I, before Community School of Davidson, I essentially, yeah, we're like, we were going to church. Um, but then also more for me anyway, more of, you know, being a, a mom and, you know, raising my girls. And that is what moved me into uh, what I do now, because I was around families who had lots of questions and wanted an education. And, you know, when they would ask me questions, they liked the way <clears throat> that I answered the questions. And I didn't think I, I realized at the time that um, I, because I am a teacher <laughs> and a professional educator, um, yeah, I was essentially educating them or giving giving them an education where they had been accustomed to uh, maybe being told like, go educate yourself, or maybe they were being told things that really didn't make sense in the practical world. Um, what was it about the way you answered the questions that they liked so much? Well, what they told me, I mean, but that's what they would say. Um, oh, I've never heard anybody talk about it that way. Or, Give me a for instance, <laughs> what's something they would ask? Okay, something. here's something so superficial about, um, I would get questions about hair because we were always around families. We we're immersed in multiracial, multicultural families all of the time. And so there's lots of questions about, you know, my hair type or if parents have straight hair and their kids have kinky coily hair, they're asking these kind of questions. And so I would then give this tutorial on different hair types and how to take care of different hair types. So then people would appreciate this tutorial that I gave them um, instead of maybe shaming them because they don't know how to do their child's hair. So that actually happened initially a lot. And so I would have people over and have what I called hair affairs and moms and kids would come and then we'd learn about different hair products and different hair textures and types. And we were all uh, different from all different backgrounds. And so it wasn't just, um, you know, it was like some families had adopted their children, some families, of, they were children by birth, but there's all these differences in our phenotypes and people were just trying to figure out how to live practically. What is a phenotype? Oh, oh, sorry. <laughs> Remind me, <laughs> I, I should know. No, no, no. Actually, it's becoming, I love that people are starting to use the word more. Anyway, phenotype is what we look like. And so phenotype is like our observable, observable features um, that, you know, are genetic. And it's oftentimes what we call race, but race is not our phenotype. And so our phenotype is our skin color, you know, our hair texture. Um, yeah, your even your fingerprints. So um, yeah. a couple of weeks ago, I interviewed a woman who was biracial. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know she was biracial. Mm -hmm. And it just led to so many questions. Mm -hmm. And um, it quickly skips. It quickly gets very deep. Mm -hmm. it, it's quickly not about hair. Right. Like it's about exactly. basic respect. Yeah. And so it it went from that to 
why do we still have racism in 2014? This is when I started getting a lot of questions. And so because of the things that people would ask me, I mean, that's how I learned that, oh, there, there isn't like this, there isn't a basic understanding of how race has functioned in our country and how racism operates. So I would just give people like a fundamental understanding. And then they would say, oh, when you talk about it, it sounds so hopeful. Like we can actually change this or it sounds so digestible. And I'm thinking, well, who are you talking to? Like, who are you asking questions? And they talk about people, they authors they were reading and oh, it just feels so daunting um, and so impossible. Um, I was even part of, I remember this one woman, she's leader of a group and and I just begin to talk about the potential and possibilities of you know change and and how that they could be they could participate in this change and and she said I have never heard anybody talk about racism and racism that way she was like I just feel so hopeful and so excited <laughs> I was like who are y'all talking to and so eventually when the 2015 massacre happened in Charleston. Then um, someone at church said, okay, enough of these side conversations. Teach us. And I'm going to put a date on the calendar and you show up and teach us. At which church was this? This is Mosaic Church, okay. Charlotte, right here Got in it. Charlotte. Mosaic Church, Charlotte. So one of the, the leader's wives said, yeah, when you teach us. So again, for me, I thought, well, yeah, like I have curriculum like coming out of my pocket. Like that's not... <laughs> so then I created... I created this, um, this curriculum. Book. Well, yeah, well, <laughs> study got what lies between us. And then I just started teaching people. Um, like, let me just, like, like, we can't solve all the problems and we can't fix everything in this one instance and conversation, but I can at least give you understanding. And if you have an understanding, then you feel, first of all, you're aware and then you feel empowered to do something about it if you so choose to do something about it. And so that's how um, What Lies Between Us, Fostering First Steps Toward Racial Healing, um, kind of became, yeah, like the catalyst or my launch. And so then I would get invited, I got invited into other churches. And this was before 2020, because in 2020, you know, 2019, 2020, then the whole racism conversation and anti-racism became um, a quote unquote hot topic. Um, so when I want to talk, mm -hmm. I found that uh, black women's hair can be a conversation starter. <laughs> I mean, and you, it can go really wrong. But a lot of times what I'll say is, right. I like your hair. Uh -huh. And then I'll say, how long were you in the chair? Like how, mm -hmm. how long? And, you know, the Chris Rock documentary. Oh, the, yeah how much it costs mm -hmm. is like cost me 30 bucks mm -hmm. if that mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to go in and they're just like what number do you want the clippers on yeah okay and but it strikes me with black women in particular uh every hairstyle makes some state mm -hmm. and so you're either being intentional, I intentionally want to make this statement, mm -hmm. or you, I want to look like fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. You're saying, I want to go like after her. Even shaving your head right, is a statement. Mm -hmm. 
So it's impossible. Whereas I think of. Yeah. I was going to say, you're not making a statement with your hair. Boring vanilla white guy. You know, what do you set the clippers on? Uh, but yeah, I but guess. Don't, but are you like, I want to set the clippers on businessman. Yeah. Fly guy. I'm macho not, man. Not fly. I'm not fly I'm guy. I'm saying, like, is it like, yeah, there's, you are dictating and determining the image, the look that you want. Right? True. Yeah, it just hasn't been, it just hasn't been legislated and controlled in the way that our hair has been in the hist in history. Irons and yep, <laughs> painful. <laughs> the processes, right? Yeah. Exactly. So your daughters, my daughters, yes. Uh, how do they choose to do their hair now? Right. Everybody now, uh, my daughters and I, we wear our hair in its natural state, and so I have been very intentional in rearing them in that direction um, and normalizing curly hair. And, you know, we have three girls and each has a different hair texture. Um, and so, yeah, we've normalized it. There, there have been conversations about straightening hair, um, especially because they currently are in environments that are predominantly white. And so predominantly a hair straightening community, <laughs> like hair should be straight. Um, but, you know, we have we have been very intentional about um, offering like, OK, you if you want to change your hair, there's various ways to change your hair. Straight is not the only option. You know, there's color, there's braids, there's hairstyles. Um, I think at this point um, they they all they do love their um, the texture of their hair. Um, they don't ask to to straighten it, which is great. And I mean, they know they can straighten it. They just have to take care of it and maintain it. And it's harder to, you know, take care of your hair outside of its natural state. So I'm like, if you're going to, if you're going to straighten it by heat, then you have to keep it up. Like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that. So, um, yeah, I noticed that when we say our affirmations, <laughs> yeah, they'll talk about, they like their curly hair. I think. What is an affirmation? Okay. So in the morning on the, on the way to school, we say things that we are grateful for. We have to say what we're grateful for about ourselves. Oops. Sorry. And what we're grateful for outside of ourselves. That's beautiful. It is. And I love to hear what they have, to, what they are expressing gratitude for. And yeah, they will talk about their, their hair, which I'm excited about. And because they're in, I think they're, in a culture or in a context where most of their friends have straight hair, they like that. They like being different that way. So, oh, you know, they have straight hair and I have this hair. Everybody wants to, you know, touch and pull and, um, and it, yeah, they like being different that How way. How do you educate them about if somebody mm -hmm. invades your space? Right. So, I really have tried to not bring in my own trauma around that and pass it on to them because again, that comes from, you know, our hair being legislated and um, ostracized and people wanting to touch not out of a healthy curiosity, but out of kind of this, um, what is it when you are 
um, when it's your right uh, to to touch. Um, before, entitled. Thank you. I was like, it starts with it. Yes, entitled. Um, Said the entitled white man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. So I, so, and so again, we've had that conversation as well. I say, look, I don't um, like when people ask to touch my hair because I don't know what energy they are, you know, extending towards me. I am afraid that somebody is going to touch my hair and say something negative, And then I have to deal with the trauma of that. So I prefer, so when people ask, um, I will, you know, I will say no, unless it's a friend, like, first of all, a friend, that's whatever. A stranger is always going to be like, no, <laughs> no. So even if it's a child, no. Um, and everybody can learn to respect boundaries. I said, however, if you are okay with your friends um, touching your hair and, you know, vice versa, you touching their hair, then go for it. But just be mindful of what that feels like in your body. Is it affirming? Is it comforting? Or does it feel yucky? You know, I need you to be aware of that because, you know, if it feels yucky, then yeah, shut it down. I have, as I say, so many questions. But okay. If, if I ask a question, you don't think it's useful, please tell me. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Or if you don't want to. Oh, okay. Answer. Yeah. Um, when you come up with a mental picture of Jesus, mm. what mental picture do you have about his, what did you call it? Phenotype. Yeah. Oh, what? that's such a good question. Oh, gosh. I, yeah. Um, so I grew up with a mental picture that society, this is society's image. This is the, the predominant image of Jesus. But I grew up going to a black church, like small black, you know, black Baptist church that, you know, this is a church that has one of those churches that is you know, the, the, your ancestors created. And so it's like, it's been in the family and the family has been in it, you know, for, um, a very long time. And so then my, so then I have that sense of the divine as with the phenotype that looks like mine. So I, there were pictures, you know, I think, I think there was stained glass windows, but I don't, and I don't think, okay, I'll, let me say it this way. Growing up in that context, even when I, if I'm shown a picture or, or even being shown a picture of Jesus as white, doesn't register that Jesus is a white man. It registers as that is the norm or the normative representation, just like everything else that I see. Like that is the default representation, just like so much of what I see out there. But in here, where things are familiar and loving and comforting and encouraging, um, the image is less important than the sense about it or the feeling. And so for me, in my context and how I was introduced to Jesus or the divine, it has always felt, he, she, they has always felt like the phenotype I associate with that, with encouragement and warmth and love and family. So if I were to draw a picture, a representation, it would probably look like um, more similar to me than you. If you walked into a Denny's mm -hmm. and you were by yourself 
and mm-hmm. Jesus was sitting by himself <laughs> That's- having the breakfast slam. Oh. Okay. Right. Or he might not. He might yeah, just, yeah. you know, yeah. might mm-hmm. just have toes. Yeah. Maybe. You don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, would you like feel welcome, like to go over and say, hey? Do you think that he would look up and say, hey, and say, yeah, yes. I don't, yes, of course. Like if you encounter I very, Jesus. Yeah, I feel very. Like everybody talks about Jesus coming yeah. back, like we're all going to know, you know, and oh. I'm like, uh, suppose Jesus came back. Oh, yeah. Would, would I you know? know? Do you think you would get a sense? I feel like, of, I feel, well, I feel like as a person, I've always been very um, spiritually heightened. So, yeah, I think I would. And you think you'd be warm, like. Yep. Hey. You want to sit down and yeah, warm and familiar and familial and inv- inviting and um, uh, empathetic, compassionate. Like, how's your day? Like, it, yeah, like come sit down, take a load off. I know how your day was. I'm Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how I that's how I associate Jesus. And and again, going back to. Like I married into a different Christian expression. And in that expression, Jesus felt more like a businessman. What ethnicity is your husband? What does he put down on the census form? Oh, white. Okay. White. And mm-hmm. what what part of Europe would mm-hmm. you say? Mostly Italian and Irish. Okay. Mm-hmm. Italian dad, Irish mom. How'd you how'd you meet him? Okay, so that's another interesting story. I went to Iowa State for graduate school to get my master's, and we met at a church. We met at a college ministry, which actually was a black church. Mm-hmm. It was a black church, and then uh, about a year into the church, the pastor said, "We're going to no longer be a black church. We're going to be an everybody church." And so there got to be some people who had some feelings about that. Oh yeah, I was one of them. <laughs> I was not. I was not happy about that. Where'd you do undergrad? I did undergrad at an HBCU, um, South Carolina State University. Now, obviously, oh, you could have gone a lot of places. Why did That's you go right. to an HBCU? <laughs> I have all. I just. I think. Have always wanted to attend an HBCU. I don't. I try. I'm, I've always tried to trace that back. Like, who told me to attend an HBCU? I, I mean, I grew up in Winston Salem, so I would go to Winston Salem State University football games, and um, I knew people who had gone to Winston Salem State University and worked there. My stepmom worked there. Um, I had an aunt who, uh. I don't know. I don't know. She talked about, I don't think she went to an HBCU, but she talked about an HBCU. Maybe she did. I don't know. But anyway, I just always wanted to go. Felt more at home. Yes. And honestly, I like as a high school student, I, um, I felt like there was something there for me regarding, um, like blackness and, and excellence. And it would somehow feed my identity. So I was hungry for that. So I, yeah, and I remember applying for colleges and then my parents would say, well, if you go to, um, you know, they didn't say historically white, but yes, predominantly white university, 
whatever, uh, University of North Carolina or North Carolina State, look, like there's some money for you to go there. No, I was really just had a conviction, had an inner conviction about going to an HBCU. And I'm so glad I did because statistically, um, the majority of black women who earn PhDs attended HBCUs. So it was a setup. I was just following. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> there's a sisterhood and there's a model. You can see it. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and there's a network. Yeah. And there's care. Mm. So at my HBCU, yes, I was surrounded by professors who um, saw light in me and they and specifically said, look, you're going to go to graduate school. And back then, see, I didn't even know. I didn't even know the thing about the doctorate. I didn't even want a doctorate. Didn't know what that was. I didn't even know what graduate school was. I was just happy to be in college. And the professors said, OK, we're going to put you on this graduate school track and put took me by the hand and deposited. Right. And then off I went. And I actually had a professor whose brother had gone to Iowa State. And so here she was telling me, like, oh, you should go to Iowa State. It's a good program. Um, my stepmother, who worked at Winston-Salem State in the financial aid office, saw all of the good programs come across the desk. She said, Iowa State has a good program and they'll pay you to go there. And so this Iowa State kept coming up over and over. And um, that is a whole other, that's a whole nother <laughs> story. So that's where I ended up at Iowa State. From and my HBCU. So now you got teenage daughters. Yep. What kind of conversation do you have with them about that? Right. And so I have, we only have, you know, one who's at the thinking about what college she wants to go to right now. And we are just trying to be extremely open. So I haven't assumed that she wants to go to a four year college. She's talked about fashion. So I got to get busy this summer. Um, regarding now, how do you do that? Like, how do you get to fashion school or whatever? Because maybe that's the road she wants to take. Um, I have asked her to um, like consider an HBCU. She doesn't have to, because again, I went because I really wanted to go and I'm grateful that my parents said, okay, you know, so I wouldn't want her to feel or any of them to feel like they had to attend even, you know, a four-year college, whether it be um, a historically black college or university or a predominantly white. What's so white. interesting is that you can practice a ministry with a capital M or just in mm-hmm. quotes mm-hmm. Um, as a chef, mm-hmm. as fashion designer. Mm-hmm. You can, your ethic or your big why, as mm-hmm. they say, can just come through. Right. No matter where you are. And you don't have to be in church. Mm-hmm. I mean, I right. know some guys who are superb preachers. Mm-hmm. and But if you're in the hospital, you ain't going to see them. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's just too many. They've got yeah. a mega church. Yeah, yeah. And so preacher, yes. Mm-hmm. A plus plus. Minister, mm-hmm. doesn't have the time. Yeah. Too busy working on the book. That's such a good point. And so I want to bring it back around and say, why did you decide to get in a K through 12 classrooms? I mean, that's got to be a come down from I, teaching these college students, you and these kids, and they don't know, they don't know what's up. 
I know. Okay. Again, that's one of those things. I just walk through the doors that have been open. And that's such a great question. And even when I was a professor, I felt cut off from the real world or from the world. I felt like, okay, I'm teaching these, whatever, six graduate students or 20 undergraduate students. And by the time they go and implement what they've learned, even if, if they choose to, I mean, that's a whole like 10 years down down the road. And so even I, I do remember feeling a little isolated and cut off behind the walls of academe, even though I absolutely love academe. Like whenever I'm on a college campus, I just <laughs> love the smell of it. I'm like, I want to be back. But then I'm like, oh, no, because anyway, I, this whole opportunity to create this course for high school students, first of all, really speaks to my necessity to create and implement um, so to be able to take what I know um, and then, you know, this the the scholarly informed theory and implement it into practice, like to bridge those two things um, is so satisfying for me. And so even when the director said, you know, can you develop a course for the high school students? I, I was elated. And I mean, you know, this and, was the director at Community yeah, School of Davidson. Yes. Who is now retired. And so you didn't. You didn't have your resume out there on absolutely not she, LinkedIn or whatever. No, no, this whole everything has just organically. How'd she hear about evolved. you? Exactly from the church or some because of this. What lies between us? Somebody told her like you should look at um, uh, Brownicity or Lucretia Berry again. It's about people liked how I answered their questions. Now, what is Brownicity? Oh, I am so sorry. <laughs> Brownicity is the name of my organization that I created where I house all of this, where I house the, the courses I create and the experiences and all of that. Brownicity, um, yeah. Brownicity is two words put together. Uh, brown, brown represents the melanin that we all have. I have more, you have less. <laughs> and then Isity is from the word ethnicity. Ethnicity means that which we have in common. So essentially we are many hues, but one humanity. And so um, Brownicity offers education. You've got Oh, shirt. yes, that's right. <laughs> many hues, one humanity. humanity was, that's but the right. humanity is kind of- Is washed out, yeah. Yeah, many hues, one is good one, too. Good, yeah. So we um, offer education that brings people together. And you're a .com. Are you a for-profit? No, we are- um, a not-for-profit. But you're a .com. I know. Because when I was originally creating all this, we were originally just, we were just trying to find our way. <laughs> so we were an LLC. And then a couple of years into it, I'm like, yeah, let's be a not-for-profit and whatever. We just keep rolling. But yeah. And the purpose of Brownicity is? Right. So um, again, to, to give... I would say the general public, the education that like that they can't get if you're not in my in my anti-racism 101 high school classroom. And so, you know, our generation has not been we haven't had formal education around race um, in our in schools. And so unless you go to college and take a college course, yeah, you're just left on your own. And, you know, race and anti-racism, it's all too complicated for people to figure out by themselves. I know people say, well, people can teach, teach themselves, 
But again, that's why people would say to me, oh, I like how you share or I like how you teach. And I'm like, and I thought, oh, because people need um, instruction designed by an educator or designed by a teacher. Yeah, so that's there's what... a lot of, you know, it's 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 a lot to say to someone, go and oh, educate yourself. Don't get me started. Don't get me started on that. That's a I'm, lot. Like It is a lot. I mean, I'm thinking if people could actually figure this out for themselves and by themselves, I think most people would have because it's a pain in the butt for everybody. Yeah. But but most people can't. So anyway, I um, created Brownicity and then first as this way of creating this community, you know, and then that's we were having the hair affairs and the you know, conversations with moms and the field trips. We would go to museums and we would do things together. And at the same time, this course, What Lies Between Us. And so a parent at Community School of Davidson said, um, I want you to meet, you should meet our director. I told her about you. I like, again, it was like, I like how you, you teach or I like how you do this work. And I'm thinking, okay. And at that point, Community School of Davidson for me um, seemed to be um, the, you know, the model school atop the mountain <laughs> surrounded by clouds. So I thought, okay, whatever, lady, stranger lady. Um, but um, fast forward, the director and I got together. She had already gotten the book. She already like knew my voice and style and approach. And we bonded immediately, like, in a freakish way, like so fast we bonded. Um, and yeah. And so it was, you know, can you come on um, for a year and bring the staff on board and then let's create some things for the students. And so again, for the creative part of me, I loved it. I love using, you know, my skill set and, um, and bringing the kids have fun. Oh my gosh. My class is so fun. I, they come in the classroom sometimes, like they'll be singing or, you know, skipping. I love my anti-racism. And I'm like, that sounds so weird, right? Or they'll be like, I just love this class. I love anti-racism. And I'm like, I wish this could be a commercial because this is how it can be. And the kids, people might think, well, you're not really teaching them the hard stuff. Yes, they know more than most they know more than most adults, I want to say a quarter of the way into the school year. And halfway into the school year, I check on them because I know that they have more depth around this topic than most adults. So, and any of their peers who aren't in the course. So I say, who are you talking to about this? Because I know you're excited about what you're learning. And I know you're trying to share it with people and they are not understanding. <laughs> and they'll say, and I get some of the craziest stories. Yeah, I tried to tell my mom. She just wasn't getting it. Or I tried to tell, it's always grandparents. I tried to tell my grandparents. Oh, they're so racist, you know? And Or, oh, I tried to explain this to my friend. And I just told my friend, you should just take the class, you know? Um, and and so, there are classes and there are curricula for adults, but you have to kind of seek them out. It's, it's not as oh, easy. Oh, my goodness. Yes. And, yeah, and you have to even know the difference between... Yeah, what something that's designed to um, empower you versus here's a reading list of books or something, you know, something that is um, just kind of thrown together. 
And so I, I hear from people who have experienced that as well. Um, because I talk about some of the harmful ways this work has been done. And every time someone will, you know, whisper to me, oh yeah, I experienced that. Or my organization experienced that. We brought in the wrong person who caused more division or, um, yeah, I didn't like this. And because I didn't like how I was being talked to, you know, I was told I was fragile. Um, so yeah, it's, I, again, I'm an educator. So, um, growing the capacity, building the capacity of the learner is what's important. Well, people very, nobody likes to be shamed. Well, and, and beyond that, people can't learn in that, um, in a mode of shame. Like I say, we create brownicity. We create a psychologically safe space for people to bravely learn uh, because you have to be regulated, you know, unless, I mean, you can traumatize some people into behaviors, um, but, you know, no actual teacher, educator is trying, is going to do that. That is not, (laughs) unless Um, you're maybe military or something. I don't know. Oh, I did. I was. We train people. We tra- we teach people. Sorry, we teach people how to teach this, and so um, I better make sure. Oh, I'm good. Um, and and so it's funny. One of the people who had was taking our course on how to teach this uh, was a military officer, and he just could not understand my approach to being, um, I guess, accommodating to the learner, and he was saying. That is not how we do it in the military. We just tell them, this is what you, you know, this is how you think. And this is what you, you know. And I was like, well, that doesn't work. (laughs) Like, that's not how, that's not how people actually learn. You're just controlling behavior. Like, we want people, we want people to actually, like, learn how to think. (laughs) So. Yeah. It's funny. Um, I've asked this before, and some people don't like did Uh-oh. you date white guys in high school or college? Mm-hmm. And nope. so that had to be at a certain point. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was sl- there's like a lot to sort of get over. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> I know love conquers all and the, the proof's in the pudding. You've had a marriage. <laughs> He's downstairs where he gave up his office for you to talk to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. I'm so how did you... <laughs> Get past all these hurdles. Yeah. I am. I am writing a book about that. Are again, you? Yeah, that's Good. a whole other story. Um, because yes, remember I told you about the college ministry that yes. said, right, we're going to become everybody church. So for me, that I think that was like ninety seven ish, ninety six, ninety seven, ninety eight in there. Well, that was a whole time of um, what I call or what I consider racial healing. And so there's some things I had to reckon with and come to grips with. I had to um, like call out and be aware of the things that, you know, uh, like white supremacy had taught me um, and, and, and then how I created, you know, um, narratives and beliefs around all of that. And so I probably back then, um, I would not have considered myself like anti-white 
at all because I mean, I'm like, well, I, I have white teachers and white roommates, but I had never thought about the possibility of whiteness in an intimate relationship and in a close relationship um, or in a relationship as intimate as marriage or church. I had never gone to church um, with white people. I couldn't even imagine white people in church. <laughs> and I know, and there was, I have stories for, there's a reason why that is, but I couldn't imagine it. And so then watching white people come, white students come and worship with us. I remember like I standing there singing with a mic, looking <laughs> like I was watching aliens or something. Like, wow, look at this. I don't know. So anyway, there was a whole process at the same time I was enrolled in a series of courses called anti-racism education or anti-racist education had never existed before that time, had never heard of it. I didn't even know what it was. I enrolled in the series because the professor told me to, she, she's this professor that I had worked with in the community. She said, enroll in these courses um, because I want to take you um, to South Africa. We're going to go to South Africa as a part of this course. And that was 97. That was only three years after apartheid ended. So I was immersed in this whole anti-racism thing. I was having to address and reconcile with all kinds of things and had to go on my own journey of deliverance and liberation. Um, yeah, to see all of us as rightfully human and made in God's image. Um, yeah, so there was that. <laughs> and then, of course, then the people that, um, I went to church with, um, yeah, I then saw them as, you know, brothers and sisters and, and, and people that I was now doing life with. So by the time he asked me to marry him, all that other stuff was way in the past. <laughs> wow. Well, I think it's great. I can't wait for the book. How far are you <laughs> into that? Yeah. Well, I, I feel like, um, I mean, I've shared that story and written about it in other places and spaces. Um, and so, yeah, I'm actually in the process of putting together the proposal, um, to actually write about that and, and a lot of other stories around growth. The reason I asked so much about the Christian church is because, mm -hmm. um, post George Floyd and Black Lives Matter, mm -hmm. I saw the, and I don't think many Christians would describe me as Christian. Mm -hmm. uh, I've been in 12-step fellowships. I say, I don't go to churches. I go to church basements. Mm -hmm. And, um, I like that. But I'm what they call Jesus adjacent. Mm -hmm. There are many, many friends of mine who, because they believe in Jesus, I benefit. Mm -hmm. I mean, they buy me lunch. They help me with my business, you know. Um, but I see like one Jesus as the way of a path towards not shaming, but forgiveness, a path mm -hmm. toward healing. Mm -hmm. And I don't see that in any other, even though there are some religions, Baha'i mm -hmm. is a big one, in which racial healing and one humanity are a central tenet of the faith. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's like churches still have to sort of the white church and mm -hmm. the black church have to say, okay, we're going to get together. 
All right, are we done yet? Can we go back to our separate corners? You're right, yeah. <laughs> it's You really have to look for a church which is genuinely, in a healthy way, right. racially integrated. Yes. No, and you're exactly right. It's almost like you've got to create the space. You've got to be very intentional. Groundicity. There exactly, you, you do. And that is because here, or in our country, I can't speak for everywhere else. This is just where I live. Church is such an institution. And I know we say, well, church is the people, not the building. Yeah, but um, but are we really, do we really live that? Is that really lived? Because so much of the institution is the building and the building being, you know, where it is, you know, real estate and geography is racialized you know, in our country. So because race is such a part of the root structure, um, yeah, you you have to do a lot of uprooting, or raising and rebuilding. And I don't think a lot of people, uh, people maybe see church, church buildings as sacred. And so they don't consider it, you know, they don't say, think like, okay, this is an institution that we can just... Yeah, uproot, raise, or create in a different way. Like people are not ready to let it, to let that go. I heard one woman say once, and she she had heard this. There are no white people in the Bible, mm-hmm. and I was like, <laughs> <laughs> because think about it. Yeah, we weren't in Northern Europe. No. <laughs> you didn't get past Greece, You're right? Exactly. Exactly. So again, you're not in Norway. <laughs> yeah. And there is no. And, and so then, you know, sometimes I like I I have gotten criticized by churches because, for example, I don't there's not like a ton of scripture in this Bible study <laughs> or whatever. I'm not this Bible study in this study guy. People go like, well, is there any not scripture about, in it? There is because it's inspired by Romans. Um, 12 and 2, um, do not be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will know, then you will get to know God. And essentially that's neuroscience saying, you know, we can rewire our brain, right? Turn your brain on, right? And learn how you're being shaped and formed by whatever, and then, you know, be transformed. So that is the guiding scripture. And so I had to tell people, it's not a Bible study. It's a study on race through the lens of Romans um, 12 and 2. Um, and so then for so for some church people, it's not churchy enough because it isn't it isn't because I'm not using, quote unquote, scripture to try to manipulate and tell people like how to think. I'm essentially saying here are some pieces. Here are the dots that you are missing. So That's a book called Hughes. This of is you. Hughes of You, an activity book for learning about the skin you're in. And so this book is essentially because I've worked with a lot of kids and they have lots of questions and adults don't know how to answer these questions. I created an activity book informed by research, of course, scholarship and the questions that children have around their phenotype. And so, you know, an adult doesn't have to know all that I know just here, do this book with your child. Or in some cases, children just take the book from their adult and then they just do it themselves. But yes, I yeah, people want um, like going back to, churches, um, um, I think we were talking about them, like they, like, okay, it's not enough scripture to be churchy and, or, to, but it's like, 
it, that's not what you need. You need to have an understanding. Like, I feel like there's a reason why an educator is invited to the conversation or is necessary to be at the table um, because you need to learn things um, and you need to learn them in a way that isn't just about uh, coming to a, you know, a meeting or a gathering on every Sunday. Like you need like something that is life-giving that allows you to function differently um, every day or all day. So, you know. Yeah, even as a just now 64-year-old man, I still have to do that. I, I have to be intentional. Yeah. Yeah. And oh, because you were saying that um, yeah, white people aren't in the Bible, even race. Race isn't even in the Bible. And I know people try to say, um, well, ethnicity. Well, no, that's not the same thing. And race is a very specific thing. And so let's sit down and learn about this construct, why it was created. Because when you know why it was created and you know how it functions, then you can be intentional. Um, you can intentionally like take yourself out of alignment with it. But like throwing scriptures at it, won't do it. That's not. <laughs> and I know because I had to do my own thing. I had to do that. Remember, I'm part of a church. I was part of a church that was black and was very intentionally black. It, it was like these kids, however many years ago, however many decades ago, the few black students that came to Iowa State for school needed a space. And so there was the, the black, um, what was it? The black it was the Black Student Union, but that's not what it was called. The Black Cultural Center, Black Cultural Center, BCC. And then out of that came a gospel choir, which is, that makes sense in a cultural context, right? We're going to have a gospel choir. And then the gospel choir became a church. So all very rooted in a Black experience, right? And so then this pastor says, okay, now we're going to become an everybody church. So that meant some, some, we had to build a different structure. And so some things we had to go through, like culturally questioning things, like, well, what keeps, what what is maintaining this as a black space? And what is what are the things that are not allowing other people to come into this space? You know, how much of ourselves are we willing to lay down? It, I mean, it's a, it was a whole undoing. And I think that most Christians aren't ready to do that or willing to do that, or they don't even know that that's necessary. And so how about this? I wrote that story, a little bit about that story in this book, um, Teaching for Justice and Belonging, A Journey for Educators and Parents. And it's really, the book is about the process. That's why there's a seed and then a sprout and then a plant. It's about the process of what the, all of this, not just, it's not just a one and done workshop or it's not just a guest speaker. Um, it takes years and, and we're, Dr. Glass and I are sharing the work we've done and she's done in Kannapolis and in other schools and CSD. And, um, and then I do share a little bit about that church and that whole process. Like, what does that take? Um, and again, like, I don't, I don't see that a lot of churches either. They don't know what it takes or maybe if they read that they do and they go, never mind, we don't want to do that. <laughs> We're going to stay the way we are. If we got struck by lightning today, mm. 
And the only thing that survived is this little piece of digital audio. Oh, my goodness. What is your legacy? Hmm. My legacy is my girls, our girls being um, standing in the wholeness and fullness of their identities. Um, all of it, not just ethnicity and race, um, but all of it of who they are. Children of God. Oh yeah, most definitely. <laughs> in the yes, yeah, standing in their divine identity, which is that is what from the beginning of Brownicity and the beginning of our family, I should say, my husband and I have said, like we need our children to know who they are essentially, because society is going to tell them all kinds of things, especially because they're multi-ethnic. Um, or biracial. And so society is going to lay all kinds of narratives and stories on them. And so we've always, you know, since they, before we even conceived, we had conversations about how, what we would put in place and what conversations we are going to have um, so that they can stand firmly and wholly in who they are. Doctor. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. So God bless you. <laughs> Thank you so much. It was so unorthodox. I had no idea what we were going to. Neither we do decided. I. This was amazing. Thank you, Lucretia. <laughs> that was fun. She said unorthodox. Well, I'll take that as a compliment. Unorthodox questions. Better than that, listening to answers. You can find Lucretia Carter Berry uh, on LinkedIn and on the internet, most notably at Brownicity, B-R-O-W-N-I, City, C-I-T-Y, Brownicity, and does great training for kids and adults, and you can find all her books there as well. Thank you, Lucretia. In Her Words is a production of the Queen City Podcast Network in cooperation with Balto Creative Media. Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative, Rachel Clapp Miller and Roshonda Pratt are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins and Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Katherine Smith. That's me. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and take a moment to rate and review. It really helps others find us. If you love us, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com. Look for Man Listening. One word, no spaces. A small investment makes a big difference in lifting up the voices of women. And a huge shout out and thank you to everyone who has supported little old me and manlistening.com and in her words, the podcast, man listening to the podcast, and now Voice Locket and voicelocket.com, my new venture. More about which later. Thank you all. Thank you for your support. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Thanks so much. <laughs> <laughs>